You are listening to Mountain Bike Radio. Thanks for tuning in to the Ride Fat Bike Show on Mountain Bike Radio. I'm your host for today, Ben Welnack. And with me, I have Christopher Tassava. He uh, recently attempted JP's Backyard Fat Pursuit out in Idaho. And he, earlier in the winter, uh, raced the Arrowhead 135 and completed that. So I wanted to get him on and get his take on what it's like to compete at nearly 40 degrees below zero and to take on uh, JP's uh, the first year race. So Christopher, thanks for taking the time to be on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ben. Yeah. In so, between those two races, I did your Fat Bike Frozen Forty. Exactly. So. Yeah, exactly. I was <laughs> I, we were I was going to get to that, but we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about that too. So. Cool. Um, so my first question before we get going is, are you done with winter? Being in Minnesota, are you done with winter yet? Uh, physically done with it? No. Um, I'm looking out the backyard, and uh, we have a snowdrift big enough that the girls can't go out our patio door. Um, I myself personally, though, I love winter. If it lasted, you know, another month, two months, if I had good snow riding, that'd be fine. On the other hand, if it all melted tomorrow, I'd be happy hopping on my gravel bike too. So, Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I'm flexible. Yeah, that's that's a good good mindset to have, especially uh, especially this winter out there. Um, all right, so before we get into it, uh, you know, I want to remind listeners to just check the bottom of the page because, uh, or bottom of the page you're listening to here, uh, I'll link a bunch of the show notes. But Christopher did a fantastic job, uh, and you can go to tasva.com, and I'll like I said, link that. But he did a fantastic job of writing all of this down. So the Arrowhead 135, he has three posts, details out the gear and food and questions that he kind of answered questions that he seems like he got a ton of, like, did he sleep? Did a, you know, the point of this is I want to get a little deeper into the thoughts and the feelings that kind of all goes behind that. Um, I don't want to just rehash what he's already written. Like, I think, uh, think he did like i said a really good job doing that so um we'll get into both races but first i want to back up i want to get a little bit you know give people a background of how did you even get started in fat bikes you know where did you come up with the idea of chasing down the arrowhead 135 um so let's start with that how did you get how did you get started in fat biking was it like something that you you know been mountain biking for several years and it kind of just progressed into that or was it something that one day you just said hey that's really cool i have all these trails out my back door in the winter i want something new how did it start it was more the second um i live in a little town where uh, it's easy to bike commute so i'd been commuting on an old beat-up mountain bike for a couple years had a couple crashes my wife got a little concerned about you know me getting run over or something in a short commute so I, i bought a gravel bike that turned out to be a ton of fun and then the guy who sold me that bike um he now works for Salsa, so he knows his bikes. He you know, just kind of mentioned to me, knowing that I skied a lot, that uh, you know, this a fat bike was a great way to experience winter. Um, I saw a bunch of people riding them around town. They just looked like a blast. So I went and kind of idly the way you do, you know, kind of go down to the bike shop and you find all the bikes, and you're like, oh, that'd be super cool. It turned out he had a bike that was uh, already like a year old, maybe two years old, kind of been the shop bike, but he gave me a great deal on it. And uh, I bought that. That's the muckluck that I have now and have ridden in all these races. And I knew as soon as I went out the first time on it, it just on gravel roads, snowy gravel roads, this was it. You know, this was better than gravel riding even, which is 
my favorite. Um, and then it turns out, yeah, I'm literally a half mile from uh, one of the snowmobile trails down here that hooks up into the whole massive system around Minnesota. And uh, that opened my eyes. It, it, I lo- still liked cross-country skiing, but I have to wear the same clothes anyhow. You don't have to wax bike <laughs> yeah. tires. You, know, you just yeah. hop on, and I'm there in 10 minutes, and then I'm as far as I want to go. You know, I can bike literally to Wisconsin if I want to, um, or I can just kind of go around the block. So it all hooked up together like that. I followed the arrowhead kind of, um, you know, at a distance or maybe just as a curiosity. But then it turned out a guy here in town, uh, another experienced you know, gravel dirt rider, he tried it last year, and he and I got to talking about it, and I thought, you know, he's a strong rider. He's done 24-hour races and stuff, probably stronger than me. But I was like, you know, if he can do it, maybe this is something within the realm of possibility. So, um, you know, you have to apply. I applied, and I kind of pled my case. I'd never done a 24-hour race, but I said, you know, I'm good outdoors in the winter. I love the cold, et cetera, et cetera. done several centuries on my bike. Maybe let me in. <laughs> so they did. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, maybe they laughed at my application when they got it and said, this guy's never going to finish, but let's take his registration fee. On the other hand, maybe they thought, sure, give it a shot, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So then it, with the Arrowhead, you have to sign up or apply or whatever pretty far in advance, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it was like September or something. Yeah. So, so let's, Let's kind of take it from there. So you send an application, you got the email back, and you're like, holy crap, you know, I'm yep. in. All of a sudden so, it's on. Yeah, so what do you do now? Like, how did you, was your approach, I mean, are you kind of the kind of guy to just get out and try it, or did you say, okay, this is what I need to do, I'm going to get some coaching or whatever. What What was your approach from when you found out? Well, I learned as much as I could from this other guy in town, so that helped a lot, you know, he tried it one time and he did it in the snow year in uh, 2013 when, you know, virtually nobody finished because of the blizzard, but he clued me in more to the gear and kind of the, the mindset in the, the checkpoints and stuff like that. I've been riding gravel all summer long. <clears throat> I think I'd done um, four races, maybe three races, but I'd probably done a century a month during the, the off season, so to speak. So you're no stranger to going long right. distances. Long ways. Yeah. yeah. So I felt like my fitness would be decent, and the the hump would be just continuing that. Well, um, when the snow came, but like I said before, I like riding in snow. I like being outdoors in winter, so it wasn't hard to get. Oh, I don't know. Maybe altogether, I probably did a half dozen fat bike rides of longer than fifty miles. But the longest one that I ended up doing, partly just because of time, was only seventy miles. I figured, well, you know, seventy miles isn't insignificant. It's barely half the distance to the Arrowhead, but I can't afford to take essentially, you know, two days off and try to do a 150 miler or even a, a century distance on the fat bike because that, that would take me, you know, all of a workday plus both ends. So at some point it was just a leap of faith. Yeah. And so, you know, from a gear perspective, did that guy really kind of tell you just what you needed or did you spend a lot of time trying to figure that out? Because I know, you know, like you said, the fitness, you got it, you know how to ride a bike you can work, you know, you can work that out, but the gears, the gear choices, what, how did you approach that? I went, yeah, I, I talked with him a lot. Um, he was, um, very clear about the fact that these aren't suggestions for the arrowhead. You <laughs> yeah. know, they're, they're strict. Yeah. Um, I blogged a little about the one area where I tried to fudge it cause I didn't just want to pony up and buy this minus 20 sleeping bag. Turned out it should have, <laughs> um, but they worked around that with me. But yeah, this friend in town, Jerry, he 
he he walked me through the stuff I needed, you know, why a bivy sack is superior to a tent, you know, how to uh, pick a stove, that other kind of stuff. I asked a lot of other people who'd done winter camping and things like that to find out, you know, why would I use a jet boil versus an esbit? What's the advantage of an esbit over alcohol, et cetera? And it, it kind of worked out. I mean, I tested all the stuff that I had at least a little bit. Um, so I felt like if it all came apart on the race, you know, a blizzard hit or something, I'd at least be able to survive if not totally comfortable. Uh, um, we'll get we'll get to it, but it seems like you might not have tested the stove quite enough. I didn't test the stove in real-world <laughs> conditions. That's and we'll sure. get to yeah. that in the discussion about JP's pursuit. Yeah. All right. So you do all this. It's approaching. So you're, you know, let's say, because I know we, I was out there, out in the Midwest, uh, starting around uh, October. But it really started getting cold, yeah, you, um, oh. you know, like mid-November. So take us yeah. into that point. Were you like thrilled that it, you were just waiting for cold weather and snow so you could get out and start doing this, you know, training. Oh yeah. I was happy to see okay. the snow come early and the pretty good cold weather come, you know, before Thanksgiving, even we had good wintry temperatures, if not snow on mm-hmm. the ground. And, you know, people freaked out about the polar vortex. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. It's obviously not something to be trifled with. It is quote unquote life threatening, but on the other hand, it's like being outside in extremely hot weather. If you prepare for it, you know, you're going to be okay. It might not be comfortable. In fact, it'll probably be pretty uncomfortable, but wear the right clothing, test out what you're going to carry on your bike or, you know, just around the block or whatever. Um, adjust, you know, um, Eskimos live outside in this kind of weather all the time. We can certainly do it with all the, you know, stuff we can buy or make or borrow or whatever. So, I wasn't too worried about all that, and I made a point on the coldest, coldest days to still ride my bike. Um, I took uh, the day of the coldest um, vortex in January. I not only bike commuted that day, which is only like 20 minutes one way, but I tooled around town, so I spent about an hour outside in that cold, and I brought a couple pairs of mittens, and I swapped them. I'm like, well, these work okay. These are better. These are more comfortable, et cetera. Again, it's not like the arrowhead turned out to be, just in terms of length on the bike, but at least I was trying this stuff out, and I knew I wasn't going to get panicky from it either. I mean, minus 40 is cold, but you can do yeah. it. Yeah, and, you know, the, I think the more important thing is, you, you know, like you said, you commute every day, so you basically uh-huh. live in that. You you know, you even if it's 20 minutes, you still get an idea every day of, okay, I can tweak this a little bit, or maybe I should wear this, you know, tomorrow, or, you know, so you have a lot of, yeah. you live it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's all. One guy here in town said, "Well, you know, you've kind of been field testing all your right. stuff, so it's not like you're going in with a rig you've never tried out." And that was yep, true. yep. All right, so it's getting getting closer to the race. Were you getting nervous, or were you kind of just anxious to get it started? Or you know, super excited. Okay. I've never been as stoked for races, or really for anything apart from maybe you know getting married and going on a honeymoon or graduating college, as I was for the Arrowhead. Um, what nerves I had were more about just making sure I didn't follow something up off the bat, you know, sleep through the, my alarm or something. Um, yeah, I had a couple foibles, like I had my number plate in the wrong place, but I was just anxious, happy to, to see the morning come and start rolling. Yeah. Um, that, that felt good that I didn't have, you know, nervous stomach or a sweat flop kind of thing going on. I just wanted to get on the bike and start yeah. riding. It, had you ever been up to International Falls before? 
No, I'd never been all the way up there. So what was your impression uh, when I grew you rolled up in? Northern in? Michigan. Uh, I thought immediately that it felt exactly like my hometown in northern Michigan. I grew up in Hancock, well, Ironwood and Hancock in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You know, mounds of snow everywhere. Obviously, everybody's hunkered down. But at the same time, just adjusting to it, you know, people don't hide from it. They can't. Um, certainly very, very cold. I mean, like my uh, rental car's doors froze shut just <laughs> driving into town. Okay. That was with the heat on it. Inside, so I knew there was something a little more serious than normal, but. Yeah, no, and and I I read or you wrote in your uh, blog about how the the hotel lady was ready for you. She gave you a sheet to to put yeah. your bike on. Yeah, that was really sweet. Yeah. So, all right, so you you go to the meeting. Uh, did they have a night before meeting? Yeah, it's the afternoon before the okay. race. Um, they held it in this big community center, an old school. Um, you know, slideshow with like the course and sponsors and stuff like that. A little bit of Q and A. Uh, more than anything, they they tried to impress on us that this is going to be a, a super cold year, b uh, really hard on everybody, even the front runners, and that c most of the people in the room weren't going to finish, <laughs> which is kind of the opposite of most endurance events where it's kind of rah rah, you can yeah. do it. The Arrowhead people didn't adopt that as their uh, well, mentality. and they shouldn't. I mean, they shouldn't. Any race shouldn't have a goal of "Hey, everyone's going to finish." I don't. Yeah. I don't think so. So, um, did you at any point look around in that meeting? You know, look at past finishers. People have done it. You know, several times. Really fast guys look around and be like, "What am I doing here?" Like, you know, that person in the room that you've, you know, that you're like the odd one out. Or were you pretty confident at that point? Yeah. Well. I was confident that I would be okay out there. I knew I wasn't going to, I thought I wasn't going to be anywhere near the front. Um, but you look around the room and like you see Jay Peterberry and Tracy Peterberry on one side and you see Todd, uh, Todd McFadden and other, you know, fast mm-hmm. guys sprinkled around in other places. Like, you know, this is a pretty serious endeavor. And then on the other hand, I would look around and see a lot more people that look like <laughs> okay. me, you know, you know, citizen racers. Yep. Um, so I felt like, you know, those guys are going to be up front. They're doing a different thing, really, than I am. What I'm going to try to do is start and finish this, no matter how cold it is or okay. whatever. So, race day. You started off the back from the beginning. What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> you were in last from one minute I in. Think, yep. <laughs> DFL, but that was probably a good place to be. Um, if it had been up front, I probably would have uh, freaked out a little bit at the pace. As it was, uh, you know, even starting out fairly slowly, I picked off people right away because, <laughs> you know, they flatted or they were adjusting the tire pressure or whatever. Um, and it was kind of beautiful, too. I mean, looking off up the trail, it's pretty much a straightaway from the start. And dawn is barely breaking off to the east, and then you see all these little red blinkies going off as far as you can up the trail. It's gorgeous. Uh, I remember commenting to somebody as I, we rode along that it's just beautiful to, to see that. And that kind of got me charged up. One of the reasons I wanted to do the Arrowhead is versus another winter ultra is I love being in the woods. And here you're in the woods literally from the first 100 meters after the start. And you're pretty much in the woods the whole way. So that was nice. Yeah. And so it seemed like that first section up to checkpoint one, like you said, was pretty pretty good. It didn't seem like you, from your writing, that you got off. But everyone else was kind of getting off to do air pressure and stuff. And you just kept going pretty smooth. Yeah, I dialed my air pressure in the day before. I didn't have any uh, problems. Like uh, I saw numerous people stopping to adjust clothing or uh, 
I saw that somebody whose derailleur had just you know Yeesh. blown up all over the trail, must have gotten frozen or something. There were plenty of people at the the first turn where you stop heading uh, uh, one direction south, I guess, and you start heading more east. There are lots of people at the little kiosk there, warming up and eating and whatever. And I just kind of rolled through. I wasn't trying to make a point. I just didn't need to mm-hmm. stop yet, so I, I kept going. And certainly that was the prettiest part of the whole race because I was yeah. so fresh and the sun was off and white snow everywhere and trees and animal tracks and stuff like that. So you roll into Gateway, which is the first checkpoint, and you walk in the door. It's, what is it, like a little convenience store? It's a. It's actually a big convenience okay. store, and it's. You can tell that it was originally a, a real general store, and they kind of glommed on the gas station stuff. But big and cramped and crowded with all the racers and all the support. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts? You walk in, you open the door, and there's on one side there's a guy puking in the garbage can, and then there's another guy over by the med people getting pulled, you know, checking for frostbite. Did you at that point have a moment where you were like? Okay, so what did I do now? What am I getting myself into? Well, I certainly, watching people in distress, I was like, wow, things are going really badly for a lot of people. Um, I just met my friend uh, uh, Ben Doom, who I wound up going up to Idaho with um, just in March. He had I'd met him at the orientation the day before, and he was already there, and he's changed back into civvies. And I was like, hey, what's up? And he just said, I was all wet when I got here. Just my head's not in the game. Wow. Well, see you later, I guess. And there are other people kind of talking. Oh, my toes are cold. I don't know if I can warm them up. Or, you know, I wish I bought my heavier gloves. And I didn't I didn't feel that way. You know, I, I felt like I was pretty cold, and I was happy to be inside warming up and having soup and stuff. But I, I wasn't to the point of, like, oh, boy, this, I'm in over my head. I need to blow this up and quit or figure out some other way to make it through the next, what, 100 miles. So if I was surprised, I was surprised to see so many people in bad ways. But on the other hand, I felt like I wasn't yet. And there were plenty of people, you know, who were just going about their business. They came in, they got some coffee, they got a Coke, they headed back out on the way. So I felt like there was just enough of that going on, too, to balance it. And I sat too long there. I'll certainly not wait at the checks next year as long as I did this year. But, um... I didn't feel like, oh, I've miscalculated and I need to stop here. Either. Okay. Yeah, but your goal, I mean, like you said, well, I'll ask you about next year's plans at the end because I want to ask you about JPs too. But, um, I mean, this year the goal wasn't exactly, hey, I'm going to go fat. It was just I'm going to keep steady, you know, do this thing, finish mm-hmm. this thing. Okay. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you spent, I think yeah. you, I read like 50 minutes there or something. Um, but that's yeah. enough to get – you know, warmed up, eat, get your stuff ready, get going. Mm-hmm. So the rest yeah. of the day, you get out of there, and it seemed like it was pretty smooth the rest of the day too. Yeah, it was. I mean, the they talk about um, how it's the race course is flat at both ends and hilly in the middle, and up to that check, it's fairly flat. Immediately after that check, it starts to roll and then get a little jagged even, um, and that was that became harder. I mean, about that point i was fairly fatigued um kind of tired of the food i brought which is an ongoing problem i've had i was forcing myself to eat and drink my bottles were frozen pretty quick you know it was still like you know 25 below air temp then um i started to walk the hills primarily just so that i knew i would be able to conserve energy to ride the flats when they came but i was still moving at a decent pace and the hardest part of that stretch was that when the sun went down 
I knew I was alone um, up to that point. At this point, I wasn't seeing really anybody on the trail. I wasn't passing anybody. I wasn't getting past. But when the, the sun went down, it got really black really fast. <laughs> and I was like, oh, boy, how far to this second check again? And then they'd warned at the orientation that you see the second checkpoint at Mel George's Resort way before you can get there because you're crossing this lake. And they were right. I mean, that was just one of the, you felt like you were biking on a treadmill or a trainer or something. I could see the lights. Pedaling across this lake and it was all drifted over because it was open. I couldn't find a a good line. Just keep pedaling, keep pedaling, keep pedaling. So, if anything, that was a little foreshadowing of what the the leg after Mel Georges was like, where it was all night long. But yeah, I made it to Mel Georges, and that's a really special place. That was, you know, that's everybody's favorite checkpoint. Why is that? It's a little resort cabin, you know, kind of a luxury cabin. Um, and this group of women takes it over, and they, they make it into a little, you know, happy, homey place. It's really warm inside. They've got a fire going in the, the stove, and they're cooking up grilled cheeses. They've got soup, a big table full of all kinds of junk food that you want to eat. You can pick up your drop bag there, so if there's something in the drop bag that you've been savoring, like I had like beef jerky in there, kind of a nice little buzz. Plus, they warm up your clothes. They'll run them through the dryer. Oh, this is, like, um, this is like five-star treatment. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, you know, it's just weird. All these people who are at this point, what, 12 hours into the race? Yeah. Um, looking pretty shelled, frankly. Some people at that point were dropping out. Um, like my friend from town here, Jerry, he pulled in after I did, but he was having some problems that he just couldn't overcome, and so he ended up stopping there. But, you know, people sitting around in their chamois under a blanket <laughs> while everybody's drying their clothes for him. So that's odd, but kind of fun, too, because at that point, if you'd made it that far, you were, you know, you'd done a lot mm-hmm. already, swapping some war stories already and stuffing our faces. Um, again, if anything, I spent way too long there. It's too cozy, it's too nice. You know, there's a, a real bathroom, for instance. So next year, again, um, get in and out there. Get my warm clothes back, put them on, head back was, out. But as it was. Was the grilled cheese nice. what you thought it was going to be? You had been looking forward to it for a while. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, my God. I could not describe how good that tasted. Just hot melted cheese. I, I must have had like four of them and then two huge bowls of soup. And it, soup is amazing because it warms you from the inside out in a way nothing else really does. So good. <laughs> well, good. You're going to have to, you, next year yeah. it's going to be a hard, uh, hard to keep you away from that. <laughs> Knowing what's yeah. there. Oh, I'll, I'll stop if nothing else. Yeah, just for sentimentality yeah. sake. So with, you know, you pull out of there. And it's you have the night, right? So you describe in yeah. your on your blog uh, some of the thoughts you were going through at night. You know, like you're thinking about your wife yeah. and you know sh- her kind of bedtime, the kids' bedtime. Um, it, it, just explain to people that might you know that might have kids and you know do all this riding, but haven't really experienced something like that. Like, can you just explain what that's like? Yeah, I, I mean, try. you know, because you could spend two hours thinking about, well, I did this with, you know, one of the girls at one night and just kind of give people an idea yeah. of what goes through your head. I mean, that was the moment, like it wasn't a fat pursuit a month later where I felt like, I felt most acutely like I was abandoning my family because <laughs> the bedtime routine is kind of my thing at home. Um, you know, I'm the one who gets the girls ready for bed mostly, you know, tucks them in, all that stuff. And here I wasn't doing it. Not only was I not doing it, I was in the middle of a pitch black woods in northern Minnesota 
where they were talking about temperatures going down to like minus 40. You know, kind of a what the hell moment. On the other hand, I knew I'd made it through Mel George's and Ski Polk, the third step, the third check was pretty far away, but at least had been biking. You know, I knew I'd, I was on the way at least. Um, but the amazing thing is how black it is, unless you look up and you see all these gorgeous stars. Um, a couple times I've turned off my headlamp just to see how dark it was, and it's like, you know, putting a bag over your head. <laughs> there's just nothing to see. You can't make out anything. Um, there's no light, you know, apart from the stars. So I grew to treasure my headlamp that, you know, it threw off just enough light that I felt like I could tell it was moving by watching the trees go by, even if I was walking the hills. But then, yeah, the mental games I would play, like all the things I would think about and constantly running through kind of the, the physical checklist. Can I feel my fingers? Is the left hand numb again? Okay, let's stop. Let's wiggle that hand more. My toes, are they okay? Um, how's my saddle sores? All that stuff is generating brain activity. And more than once, I would just, especially on some of the uphills, I would just kneel down next to my bike and count out 10 breaths and then take 10 steps and count out 10 more breaths and take 10 more steps. I'm sure it took me you know, minutes to go up some of those hills, but just trying to figure out how to do it. And that worked. You started off, like you mentioned, um, doing the hills, you know, it seemed like no problem once you got into kind of the middle, but by that point, like you said, you're taking a breath. Um, and you even made a point of saying, I can't remember where it was that you met up with somebody when we were riding with them, but you made a point of saying those fucking hills. <laughs> so you must have been, you know, yeah. that fatigue is setting in. What's it like, you know, every time you see a hill, are you just like, shit? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, you come around a corner, maybe there's a slight downhill or even a sharp downhill, and maybe it's a flat, and then you turn a corner, and damn it, you know, the trail goes up. How can it keep going up? At what point is it going to level out for even a half mile or, you know, a quarter mile? And it just doesn't. It's just not that kind of course. It's all up and down. So, yeah, I ran into, um, I forget if he came up on me or I came up on him, but uh, another racer, and we wound up running alongside each other for a little bit and then kind of yo-yoing so one of us was in front of the other. But we certainly weren't having conversations, but we were at least sharing some words, you know, cursing the hills. And he was telling me how this was the hardest year out there had he'd ever done, and I think that was his, his eighth attempt, uh, seventh. You know, he'd finished all seven previous, so that's pretty serious. You know, here I am riding with this guy a pro at the arrowhead really that made me feel a little better on the other hand he thinks <laughs> yeah. this is awful i must think it's even twice as awful but that little bit of human contact being able to see his light when he was up ahead of me or feel his his light from behind when he was behind me that was a huge psychological and you know with that what did you this is kind of a bike question i guess but you don't exactly you're not exactly running the lightest bike so I think I re- right. read that it's just without anything, it's close to 40 pounds. Yeah, it's like okay. Eight. So did you have, I mean, was it a real struggle? Was it more of a leg thing or was it like a real struggle to get your bike up packed, you know, all that stuff up these hills? It was a real okay. struggle. More than anything, it was upper body. Okay. Um, my, um, the upper body thing is, uh, can't be overstated. Um, I did a lot of training in the gym, um, because it's fun, CrossFit kind of stuff. And that paid off hugely because when you're pushing that bike up the hill, you got to control it with the whole core and shoulders and then just keep the legs pumping to move. But um, 
I certainly started to feel sore and felt like I'd been doing overhead squats or something and I just had to keep going. Yeah. No, it's, it's impressive to be pushing around basically what, like 70 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I figured conservatively about okay. that. Yeah. So I would, you know, play tricks with myself too. Like, well, every time you eat, <laughs> fill a bite <bicep> lighter. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was that half ounce of almonds now is inside me and not on the bike. But. Right. I'm talking, this is, you're listening to the Ride Fat Bike Show. I'm talking with Christopher Tasava, and we are talking about the Arrowhead 135 and JP's Pursuit. Uh, we're just kind of wrapping up the discussion about Arrowhead. Um, and he had a pretty good race, and uh, we're going to ask him uh, what he's going to do differently. Well, first of all, you know, how did the race play out compared to what you expected? So... You know, you you mentioned like you stayed a little bit extra at the aid stations, but you know, in your head going into it, you know, you had a plan. Obviously, did it work out close to that, or you know, how did that? How did you feel about that? My my plan was to ride um, each leg from the you know start to the check, and then between the checks to the finish, as its own kind of uh, chunk, stringing them together as quickly as I could, but. Um, I, as long as I felt like I was hitting the checkpoints and I didn't need to stop either because of you know, frostbite or fatigue, then I felt like the plan I had was working. I didn't have any expectations as far as speed or you know, doing anything at different times. I didn't know the course, so I didn't know, oh, I should really hammer the first chunk because it's flat and then just try to survive the middle two chunks because they're hilly. If anything, hearing at the um, Mel Georgia's checkpoint that only – I think when I was there, when I was about to check out, something like only eight people had left or nine people had gone through. That was a shock. I thought, holy cow, huge attrition. Um, it meant, you know, on paper, I was in the top ten, and that's kind of a charge, um, especially when I had no intention of being anywhere near, you know, the top half, much less, quote, unquote, top ten. So there's a little bit of a psychological boost there. Yeah, so with, you know, with that... Were you, besides the, I guess, you know, the big thing is the checkpoints, like you said, shorter time, but what would you change? What are you going to change going into next year? Anything? Uh, bring less food and a wider variety, uh, for one thing. Um, my clothes work great. I, and if I had a way to buy a much lighter bike, you know, a time o'clock or something, I would, but that's just not in the cards. I'd rather put that kind of money towards race entry fees or travel and a new bike. Um, I, the stuff I tried at the fat pursuit worked fine. I mean, as far as my bag and stuff like the sleeping bag and so forth. So there aren't many tweaks that I'll make in those respects. I do really need to figure out what to eat on these super long things where you just get tired of eating in general and you get specifically tired of all the stuff you brought. I can't believe I brought so many of these damn almonds. These are awful. Um, all this candy. I ate so much candy at the, no, not candy, but sweet nutrition, that my teeth would ache. It's not a you know, pleasant distraction while you're trying to ride a bike. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know if there is something. It's one of those grass is always greener kind of things. Like, oh, I wish I had this. I wish I had. I don't want any more of these gummy bears. You know, right? Whatever. Um, all right. So you're going back. Um, if there, you know, somebody in your shoes going into this year. If there's people listening to this or reading about all the stories from this year and thinking about doing it for next year, what advice would you offer them? 
Um, well, one, be ready for cold. Um, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't enjoy riding when it gets even to 32, much less zero, um, either train yourself to do it or find another long bike race because that's the dominant physical thing, you know. Um, I had said earlier that I wasn't uncomfortable, but I mean, I was very cold the whole time. I mean, I got frostbite on my nose. I got frostbite on my cheeks. My toes are still, what, six weeks later, eight weeks later now, my toes are still a little bit numb from that. Um, that's just part of doing business. You know, if you're going to race the airhead, you're going to have stuff like that happen to you. I don't think there's any way around it. Second thing, though, is if you decide to do it, allow a lot more time than you expect. I, on paper, had thought, well, you know, given how fast I'd done this seven-mile training ride with a loaded bike, et cetera, maybe 18 hours would be a stretch goal. Maybe 24 hours would be uh, a realistic goal. wound up taking me a little over 29. So I'm not sure whether I would have been better prepared to have a realistic time in mind or less prepared. Maybe it would have scared me off, but you got to be ready to be out there a long time. Anything with sleep? <laughs> Anything you think you could do to, to help you deal with no sleep? No. Um, me personally, I was surprised that I was able to continue without sleeping at all at Arrowhead and not get you know disoriented or hallucinating or like they, people were swapping stories at the orientation about people who'd kind of a little bit gone nuts with no sleep and had biked the wrong way down the course or, you know, were telling people that they'd finished when they were still between the second and third checkpoints, just lost it. I held it together pretty well. Um, lots of caffeine helps. <laughs> So I, you know, I just interviewed and I'll post the interview soon, uh, the race directors from the Tuscobia 150. And they mm -hmm. told me a story about these two guys. So one of them, um, had fallen down on the trail cause it was really mushy and was hard to ride, whatever. So he fell down and when he got back up, like he was so tired that he started going the wrong way and he ran <laughs> into another guy coming one way and they actually stood there and argued which way was correct. <laughs> they were tired, you know, tired, cold. You're not thinking straight. It was hard right. to tell, you know, which way you're going. Um, yeah. And, you know, from a sleep perspective, I, I find, because I've done, you know, I've done several solo 24 races. I've done team. I've done duo. You know, so I've kind of done it all. It's really, it's easier than you think to stay awake when you're doing something. So, yeah. so like when you sit down, you know, as a team or whatever, it's impossible to like stay awake the whole night. But when you're doing something yeah. like I like those nighttime hours, I like between one and mm -hmm. six, just because you're really focused. You're really in, you have to be in the moment. Otherwise you're going to crash yeah. basically. Yeah. You're going to crash. And when else in your life are you going to have that kind of amazing experience of being completely shelled and yet doing something you love biking, you know, mm -hmm. that, you can't create that normally. I, my life just doesn't allow me to go for a 24-hour bike ride. You know, my wife has a hard enough time letting me do these things, much less just you know practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, so that's, that's good advice. So, all right, let's switch gears because, um, you know, Arrowhead, huge, you're coming off like you're, you know, I think you said something about Cloud9 being way below, you know, at that point because you're all yeah jacked up. And uh, I'm sure that lasted – I'm sure it's still going, huh? The the feeling of yeah. I mean, it sounds maybe a little braggy or self-aggrandizing or whatever, but yeah, you know, it'll just kind of pop into my head and like you finished seventh at the Arrowhead. <laughs> totally surprising myself and thinking, wow, 
you can do some hard stuff that you didn't think you could do. Um, your bike held up fine. Nothing terrible happened. People seem to enjoy the story of it, <laughs> even if you know they're coming at it from a perspective of like, "Wow, that's some crazy shit I'd never yeah. do." I mean, all those things are great, and yeah, definitely, I have not come down kind of from that high. It's maybe a permanent sense of satisfaction. Yeah, no, it, it's fine. You know, there's a difference between bragging and sharing a story, and I'm, I, I wouldn't be worried if I were you about bragging. You, you shared the story. It's it's okay to brag a little bit. You did a good job. So, yeah, that's nice to hear. Huh? Yeah. Okay, so actually, before we get to JP's pursuit, I have to plug the Frozen Forty because I'm me and a buddy put that race on. So, yeah, talk two minutes. Tell me, tell me how that experience went because I know, like you read or you uh, write in your blog that you're not the most uh, single track savvy. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm the opposite of that. Okay. Um, I did your race last year in thirteen and just had a blast. Just super fun. Um, took me forever, but it was a great challenge. It was first, I think race I'd done on my fat bike. So as soon as you guys opened up registration, I signed up again. So I was signed up for that long before the arrowhead or the fat pursuit. Um, when I went to it, you know, I felt okay physically, but it was clear after about one lap that the legs were not as strong as I thought they were. Uh, and then, yeah, the, um, Jesse Lalonde put up on one of his Instagram feeds or something that it was slot car racing. You know, you had the six or eight inches of track you just had to steam it yeah. if your wheel went out so did you off the off the bike i crashed so much it was just i was laughing the whole third lap that was my last lap because i needed to get back home but uh it's just not my thing <laughs> so i need to practice that a lot because it turned out to be somewhat like the fat pursuit did you know stretches where you needed to be technically on if you're going to keep riding your bike otherwise you're going to be walking yeah. um i got pretty banged up my knees hit the handlebars so many times and uh, hit my head on a tree. So I wound up having to replace my helmet afterwards and a very different experience from there. That's for sure. But still tons of fun. Yeah. I mean, what's not the like? Yeah. And the thing is, is they do a fantastic job of grooming, but I think a combo of having all season, not going above freezing, maybe more than twice. There was no freeze yeah. thaw, So it was like two feet of powder. They've just been packing and plowing. So, yeah. yeah, and then you put that many put that yeah. riders on it. It's true. Yep, yep. Um, but that said, I mean, looking at those those top guys, like top twenty, their times were only well. The winner, he was like Jesse was maybe a minute off his time last year. Last and at year, top yeah. twenty, they were maybe fifteen. I think it was like fifteen minutes on average off of their time from last year. So it wasn't, you know, for that lead group, I guess it wasn't too bad, but. The rest, no. it was, it was a, it was a slog for someone that fourth lap for sure. Yeah, it was. All right, but so I'll be back next year. Cool. I've already made plans for maybe bringing a relay team. Cool, bunch of people up from Northfield. Cool. So we'll we'll figure something out on that. So cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So JP's Fat Bike Pursuit, uh, first year event, uh, put on by Jay Peterberry out in Idaho at elevation. Uh, you know, pretty cool. He was posting pictures beforehand, uh, the last couple months actually. And it's pretty like, it's what you want, you know, the remote mountains, views, wilderness. So animals, animals. Oh, and I forgot to ask you, I was going to ask you about, uh, did you see any wolf tracks or anything on Arrowhead? Yeah. I saw tons of wolf tracks, okay. which I at first thought were, uh, dog sled team tracks. And then later it became clear because they were just like two or four at a time. They were wolves and they're much bigger than, you know, huskies. Mm-hmm. And then some of the other racers after they finished had actually seen wolves. It's like, wow. Uh, I think 
Ken Kruger, or Jackie Kruger, said, you know, even if you didn't see the wolves, they saw you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Did you see any wolves out at JP's? Wolf no, I didn't. I didn't. No. no, I didn't even see wolf tracks. Um, I saw what I learned were moose tracks, and I did see a moose to one of my wrong turns oh. on course. But um, That's cool. I think it was just, you know, the wrong. I, maybe I wasn't paying attention. I don't know. Maybe they were there. Moose tracks are huge for anybody who hasn't seen yeah. them. They're like, yeah. you, you see them, and you're like, holy crap, did somebody fall in the snow? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So we'll, we'll get to that. I'm curious uh, the wrong wrong way here. So how did you decide to take on JP's race? Was this like something just in the last minute, or was it kind of you had in your Not mind? Not quite okay, the last minute, but okay. it certainly wasn't on my agenda for the year. Um, Jay and Tracy were at Arrowhead. You know, They won their respective classes in dominant fashion, and I was kind of amazed that they were just hanging out in the recovery room with all the rest of us, you know, just shooting the shit with everybody. Um, and so Jay was going around, you know, telling people about his race and saying, you know, if you can come out to Idaho, if you're out in the West, please come and do it. And if, if you can make it work the way lots of us Westerners would have to come on out. I was like, well, I, I'd love to, but yeah, it's a long ways to go. And he said, well, see if you can try to make it work, try to make it work. <laughs> so one thing led to another. And this guy, Ben Doom that I'd met at Arrowhead, it was going out there he was going to drive and he wanted company in the car. So I asked my wife and she kind of gave me the, uh, the, you know, bike widow eye roll, but she said, if you can make the logistics work and you think you can pay for it, go ahead. So I, you know, I sold a bunch of bike gear, <laughs> um, worked out the cheapest lodging I could, you know, was able to ride out there with Ben. It just happened, you know, in a million sort of shot. And, um, I was really happy it did because, for me, all the stuff out there was brand new. I'd never been in the mountains, only in my really second ultra distance fat bike race, et cetera, et cetera. So how'd you do with the elevation then? Obviously not good. <laughs> I mean, we, we got out there and um, Ben had been at elevation before, you know, doing winter camping and rock climbing and stuff like that. So I think he knew what to expect and I gathered information from other people about what it would be like. But really none of the stuff they warned me about came through and never had headache um i never was zapped where i you know couldn't even breathe and needed to like kneel down i felt just okay but it was clear uh from the little bit of riding we did before the race and then the race itself that maximum effort was like maybe 70 percent of my real maximum effort at you know elevation in northfield for instance and that was kind of a shock because that had I realized that, I would have thought differently about what I needed to do to finish the race um, or you know, get as far as I could in the race. But on the other hand, there's no way to adjust altitude apart from going to altitude and breathing the thin air for a while. So that's what we ended up doing. So with the uh, experience of Arrowhead, you know, fresh in your mind and everything kind of dialed, were you pretty confident about JPs or were you nervous just because it was kind of unknown territory, unknown scenery? not close to home um, yeah again i wasn't nervous like you know chewing my fingernails oh my god what am i into um i did think that i would be able to finish um that's where I, I didn't factor in the effective altitude um but on the other hand the pre-race meeting that jay ran was very different from the arrowhead one neither one is better or worse or anything like that but he had a much more optimistic kind of um you know, this is an experience you're getting to ride your bikes in places where bikes are not allowed to go normally. You know, he needed a special permit to do this, et cetera. Um, you're going to see stuff that people don't see from a bike saddle. Um, you're going to push yourself as hard as you can and then probably pass that, especially if you do the 200K race. And 
you're going to be out there a long, long time. Um, so that maybe ratcheted down my expectation that I needed to like, you know, finish or, um, you know, duplicate in any way the, the piece that I managed to finish at the Arrowhead. I was just ready when the race started to start riding and see what, what this is all about. He posted a lot of pictures uh, early on, you know, leading up to the race and showing, you know, good conditions, pack condition. And leading up to the race, there was a little bit of snow. Yeah. So did you, uh, I saw you, you had posted or Ben had posted a, a video showing uh, a little pre-ride that you guys did. And I noticed from like the first second that the the mount that your tire was going into the trail, yep. it was like, oh boy, that's yep. not going to be good. We both aired down not long after he took that little video, but it was really mushy. Um, they have very different snow than the Midwest does, very dry, fine stuff. Um, and they hadn't had as serious a freeze-thaw as Jay had been hoping. So it got pretty soft the day before the race, and it never really firmed up, although overnight it was noticeably firmer than it had been um, during the day. On the other hand, those snow machines that they run out there, holy moly, those things are monsters and they they tear the groom trail up in no time flat i mean two of them going by have reduced uh groom trail to for me at least almost unrideability um and when you get these huge groups of 20 40 60 going by (laughs) you might as well be trying to run through a cornfield yeah the patch the patch that those things lay it's it's basically a track for it's like what a track and a half of a normal yeah you know snowmobile which you would think in the midwest yeah yeah so, they're wider they're longer mm-hmm. they're lighter so they don't pack while they run you know they just kind of skim the surface and they chew up that top inch or two and then the next one chews up that same inch or two and um but you know that's what racing's all about trying to adjust to that were you in exactly that's a you know that's a really good point were you did you were you thinking oh crap i'm really this is gonna be really hard or were you just thinking okay eh, whatever just do what i gotta do Somewhere in between, uh, although maybe more towards the crap, this is really hard. Um, <laughs> the first, you, you open by doing the same loop that the 60K racers, who start a couple hours later than you do. Much of that was rideable, although some of the, the steeper hills I, I couldn't have ridden, you know, at all, uh, no matter what. But overall, I, I kept going. You know, I was on the bike more than I was off the bike, for sure. Um, checkpoint was, the first checkpoint was its own little experience, and I blogged about my problems slash solutions with the the fire starting test that Jay imposed on everybody. Um, Soon after that check, though, the the trail got quite a bit worse. I think that there was just um, the grooming had happened further ago just because we were further into the day and more snow machines had come by. And not long after that first check started walking more than I was riding. And I was like, okay, I guess this is just how this is going to go. Let's uh, find every bit we can ride. If it's a flat or a downhill, we're just going to hop on and we're going to you know, cruise as well as we can, and when it's too thick, we're going to hop off and we're going to walk some more. And it turned out, of course, that I wound up walking the majority of that that section. I, conservatively, I think I probably walked, pushed, you know, maybe 30 miles. Um, and for sure, my upper body felt like it. I felt like I'd done uh, the worst weight workout ever, um, even by the time that I was in the overnight stretch, still before reaching the second checkpoint. But again, so like I'm- I said, that's just how it is. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to gloss over the the first checkpoint though with the the stove, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> just because it's funny. Um, you almost, I mean, like you said, you do that first loop, and what Jay had done is told racers that you're going to have to use your stove. 
Yeah. You're going to have to melt some water, and you don't know where, but you're going to have to do it. Yeah, you got to boil eight ounces of water in front of him. You know, he has to see it boiling. So, I thought that was so you start with 20 matches and a lighter <laughs> that doesn't really work and hands that are really cold. Hands that are really cold, yeah. Um, what happened? What was that sinking? When did that sinking feeling start in that you were maybe not going to be able to go on in the race? Um, when I couldn't hold the lighter steady enough to flick the thumbnail, I mean, my hands were, I was watching them and they were shaking like, you know, six or 12 inches back and forth. I, I actually couldn't even see the lighter anymore. My hands were shaking so much. That was when Jay said, you know, put your coat on, warm up a little bit. Um, so I said, okay, the lighter's not going to work. I stowed the lighter under my arm, trying to warm it up. Ah, I still have all these matches. Certainly, these 20 matches are going to be enough. But they wouldn't light on the, the uh, surfaces that I had available. <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, I've made two miscalculations here. I did the wrong thing with the lighter, and I brought matches that won't light. Um, strike anywhere, huh? Strike anywhere, except where you need them to, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, at that point, I was like, all right, if I get pulled, this is clearly all on me. I mean, Jay's making his point in spades here. You know, I brought technically the quote-unquote right stuff, and I can't make it work. That's not the stove's fault. It's certainly not the race director's fault. That's all on me. But, again, like that positive mood that he struck at the orientation, it was the same thing at that checkpoint. People wanted you to succeed. They weren't going to light your fire for you. They couldn't. They weren't going to, you know, give you somebody else's flame or something like that. But on the other hand, you know, they, they helped me with the, the windscreen, they, they let me go into the shelter. Um, it wound up furnishing me with that other lighter, which maybe is a little questionable, but it worked. I got the, the flame going and then I kept that lighter, that functional lighter. <laughs> and, uh, like I said, in that blog post, I spent quite a bit of time after that checkpoint thinking about all the things I need to do differently next time to make sure I can get a fight going in five minutes instead of half an hour. Yeah, because it could be, like, if you had had to do an arrowhead, you would have probably been in trouble. Yeah, I would have been in big trouble. Yeah. So with, like you said, with all the walking um, and long, you know, you've had a long winter already. You know, that ch that kind of push from checkpoint one to checkpoint two in West Yellowstone. Um, talk about that. What did you, you know, you're thinking, did it change, or did you just kind of kept on steady and... You know, just thinking, okay, I'll just keep pushing. Yeah. It'll get better. Yeah. Um, how did you get through that? As I was walking, I thought a lot about the equivalent moments in, at the Arrowhead when I was um, more than riding. But still that overnight cloud, cloud the sky, see all the stars up there. You can see the moon, the trees, just amazing. I mean, we you'd hit these ridges where you could look down into a bowl and just the trees would go on forever. Obviously my headlamp didn't light all that up, but you could make it out into the starlight that it was just nothing out there, but the trees that was gorgeous, beautiful scenery in that respect. Occasionally there'd be these little moments where I would get up high and I could see lights and I didn't know what they were. Were they another rider? Was it the snow machine groomer? Was it somebody camping? Was it a town? What's going on? So that was kind of little puzzles I would work out in my head. I'm like, well, and say I'm looking to the east, maybe it's this town or that town, maybe it's this checkpoint or whatever. There are those little distractions, but more than anything, it was just like one step in front of another, trying to go up and down these hills, all cut up and everything else, hoping that I would eventually hit one of these trail sections that had been groomed. Um, Jade talked at the orientation about how all the grooming happens overnight and that 
they would be out grooming, especially for us. You know, they'd try to hit our the trails we were riding earlier so that we'd get fresh snow. And when I eventually did hit that groomed trail, it was like, oh, my God, it was the, the biggest adrenaline boost ever. And it's perfect, flat, smooth, firm snow. Um, I'd aired down to try to survive some of the uh, roughest stuff, and I aired right back up. And just to be able to pedal again after walking for that long felt like a, a million dollars. Where did you take a wrong turn with the moose? With the moose? That was after west. So, um, you know, distance okay. between west and uh, uh, that checkpoint two was like 32 miles, maybe 36 miles, or checkpoint one and checkpoint two in West Yellowstone. Uh, conservatively, I probably walked two-thirds of it. Um, though, then I hit that groom stuff, and I was like, all right, this is awesome. Now I can ride again. I can even ride uphill sometimes, all, you know, most of the time, in fact. And... Um, you can see west coming from quite a ways off because of the sky glow. So I knew, you know, I'm, I'm making it, I'm making it, I'm making it. It's overnight, running through like I had at the arrowhead. Toes, they're okay. Fingers are okay. I was actually a little sweaty at that point because I'd been working pretty hard. Um, didn't feel too hungry, kind of thirsty because I couldn't get into my water anymore, but not in any bad strait at all. Um, so I got to west, and the, the cabin there was like the cabin at uh, Checkpoint 2 Mel George's on Arrowhead, kind of this luxury cabin. Just one woman working there, but she got me some chili. She you know, made me a cup of cocoa or a cup of coffee or something. The beds in the cabin, both were occupied by racers who um, dropped out at that point. So I felt like, all right, they're done. I, can, I, can, I know I'm not uh, done yet. I can go once I get a little food in me. I did take a nap, a 40-minute nap, which felt amazing. Um, used a functional bathroom that was nice to have to pee on the trail side again and then I headed out of town um, I got a little turned around in town because it wasn't clear exactly where the trail the snowmobile trail resumed but once I got back on it I was just zipping along it was um, flat and then it would start to tip up because we were getting up to the continental divide but I at one point just misread the map I was trying to compare one with another and turned the wrong way inevitably of course I went down this super fast straight fun downhill i got to the bottom i saw that it was going right back up so i I stopped and i was digging out some food and i felt my phone chime and i looked on the phone it was jay he uh texted me and he said you took a wrong turn i was like what i didn't take a wrong turn he can't be right so i was a little pissed off about that but checked the maps and turn off i had taken a wrong turn so i had to walk my bike back up the hill i'd just gone down and at the very top was this uh moose just standing there Looking at me, just standing in the trail, clearly not expecting anybody out in the morning. Is that, at 7 is that the first moose you've ever seen, or you've, have you seen others? Yeah. What was that like? Well, I've seen him in like, like zoos or whatever. But, like, well, it was like uh, I first thought, uh, I don't remember that tree being <laughs> falling across the trail yeah. that way. Oh, no, that's not a tree. That's a horse. That's a really big Clydesdale. Why is there a Clydesdale? <laughs> that's not a Clydesdale. That's a moose. Yeah. And so then I laughed because it was so strange, you know, my whole the thought process, but also seeing this huge animal. I got up fairly close to it before it um, realized what I was or whatever. And then it barreled off into the woods. And it was like, it was what, like watching Jesse Lalonde go by me at Fat Frozen 40. One second it was there and then it was gone. <laughs> you know, it was clearly not far away. They, they can move that fast through the thick trees, but invisible with the coat and everything else. And that's when I saw its hoof prints in the trail. It had been walking down the trail for quite a while. Um, but then I got myself back on horse and just started plodding off this uh, long, long climb up to the Continental Divide. And for me, that was going to be like the the little and figurative high point. You know, I'd never been to 8,100 feet on a bicycle before, and um, that was going to be an experience. So I was looking forward to getting there, whether I could ride it or walk it. 
it was about half and half, I think, going up to that point. And did, how far did you get up and over it before that you were pulled? Where I can't remember where you were. Yeah, no, I I, I had to leave west by six o'clock, okay. and I checked out of there at uh, five forty-five, just before the cutoff. It felt like you know you get a little jazzed up after a break, so I was making decent time. Even when I was walking, I was walking a little faster than I had. I was going up to this uh, spot on the Continental Divide. It's on um, Two Top Trail, and the conditions were changing. Sometimes it was rideable. Sometimes it was all chewed up. Sometimes it was still untouched um, groom trail. Starting to see more snowmobilers because it was getting a little later in the day. Um, they were just out and about, um, <clears throat> but I was still making progress, and I was yeah I had a map. Um, stuck in my uh, food and bag on, on my bars so I could you know, track, okay, I just made that corner. This dot, dot, dot is the Continental Divide, so it's around two more corners. Now it's around one more corner. Got up there, and there's a tiny little signpost, but it says, you know, hmm. this is the Continental Divide. I took a picture of my bike leaning next to it, and that felt like kind of a cool accomplishment. And then uh, people had been uh, Facebooking me overnight saying, that you just got to get to that point. It's all downhill. <laughs> and I knew it wasn't because I looked at the course profile, but it was yeah. so not just downhill. I mean, it was like... A jagged kind of, you know, you'd take one step down and then you'd go a half step up and then you take two steps down and you go one step. is all like jagged all the way down. There were still some monster downhills. I've never ridden my fat bike on anything like those before. There's a long stretch that was in the, like, heavy, heavy fog. I couldn't even see from one of the the path markers, trail markers, to the next one. So I would just, like, kind of <laughs> plunge along and then it would go by and like, okay, I'm still going in the right direction. Then another one would go by. I had a crash at the bottom of one hill where some snow machiner had just stopped in the middle of the trail. All his other guys had pulled off to one side, and he just parked his sled perpendicular to them in the middle of the trail. I came blasting at it. You know, it felt like a million miles an hour. I'm sure it was like 15. And only thing I could do was bail. So I just, you know, turned my bike sideways, and it skidded, and I went over the bars and skidded on my belly almost right up to his sled. And he's looking down at me and says, You okay? I'm like, well, yeah, but. I would have busted by you if you hadn't parked your sled right there. Collected myself and hopped back on and kept going. It was kind of fun because at that point I was starting to feel like I wasn't going to make the third checkpoint on time, um, but I was just going to go as far as I could, and I would deal with the point at which I couldn't go any further when I got there. You know, would I call for a ride? Would I bike out to a road? Who knows what it would be. But I was just going to keep going. Um, You know, I was back to eating, drinking, pretty regularly you know, the stuff that i'd been able to get out of my drop bag at west was new and novel and just so just trying to go did you make it to checkpoint three uh bear well yes and no i guess um about uh two o'clock or so um you had to get to checkpoint three and out again by three o'clock um this man cave this little uh, uh snowmobile garage that one of jay's friends had made available for the rest. um I knew around 2 o'clock there's no way in the world I was going to get there by 3, much less get back out by 3. 3 o'clock passed, and I was still miles out from the, the highway that the this checkpoint was on. And so I figured you know something would be up. By the time I got there, I would either need to stop, or uh, I even was thinking in my head, maybe you know, they'd send a volunteer out to pick me up there or something like that. Because this is, a, it would be, I was figuring in my head, you know, 4 or 5, maybe 6 o'clock in the afternoon of the second day, race was supposed to be over, you know, and there weren't people supposed to be still out riding. Um, the trail did get better, so I was spending more and more time riding, and I could feel like I was going like five miles an hour, six miles an hour. I was riding up some hills that I hadn't been able, wouldn't have been able to ride 24 hours before. Lots of snow machines still going by, but, you know, I was, I was doing okay. 
then I got to the the highway that where you, it's the only highway crossing in the whole damn race. Um, you can see the man cave a couple miles down the highway. And as I was getting to the highway, I, I saw the the van from uh, Fitzgerald Bikes, Victor, where Jay works, pulling up. And I was like, all right, I think I know what this is about. You know, I I come this far, but this is the hook. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, I biked out to it, and uh, Jay popped out and came over and said, you know, how are you doing? Well, I feel okay. Going really slow though. And he says, yeah, you're going really slow. You look good. But you're going really slow. And we had a little conversation, and I knew what he was going to get to. And he said, you know, I, there's, all the other volunteers are done. I'm the only person still on duty. You got 22, 24 miles left to go. At the pace you're moving, you'll be out till midnight. There's this possible storm coming in. You're at your worst right now in terms of fatigue and you know, mental acuity, etc. I need to ask you to stop. And, I mean, I started crying immediately because it was the right thing to do. And, like I said, I'd kind of guessed that something like that would happen. But to have him tell me that was kind of different. So I didn't fight it at all. I knew it was the right thing. I didn't want him to be out till midnight worrying about me trying to come home. And I didn't want to go out there over the last stretch and blow up or, you know, get fatigued so badly that I fell asleep in a snowbank or something either. So, you know, he shook my hand and loaded my bike in the car and we went cleaned up the last checkpoint a little bit. He let me scrounge up whatever food was there. I, I took like four Cokes and like two bags of chips and I ate it all in the, uh, just in the 15 minutes past mm. there back to the start finish. And it was really emotional. I mean, I get quenched just thinking about it now, but I tell myself, you know, I didn't quit. I had to get pulled. So, you know, moral victory. Honorary finish, yeah. I asked Jay, and he said, yeah, honorary finish. <laughs> whatever that counts. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, like you said, it seemed like initially, you know, just from following you and um, posts and what you've written and all that stuff, it seemed like initially you were, like you said, you were pretty upset. But did, you know, when did it sink in? Like, you know, I gave it pretty much everything I had, and I know what I can do next time. When did that sink in? Was it like all, did you get home and, you know, I, I wasn't upset even ever. Talk some, I, okay. I mean, I didn't want to be that guy, you know, that jerk who's like, no, I can finish this. Um, I could have, sure, I could have been out for another six or eight hours. I could have plotted in at two in the morning or something like that. But it felt like that wasn't true to the spirit of the race. Um, Jade even told me afterwards when we were chatting in the van, you know, he purposely didn't call it a race. He called it a pursuit because you're not pursuing necessarily first place or 10th place or even finishing. You're pursuing an experience and, you know, a time at the bike in the woods. And I certainly got my fill of all that. And I also felt like at that point, um, I could not have gone faster to that point. There wasn't, I didn't have anything saved up, you know, I was running on fumes there. Um, I would have been running on even thinner fumes the rest of the way. Here's the right thing to do. Um, if anything, and this is maybe just like the kind of brain situation you get into after a long race like that. I felt disappointed for my bike. <laughs> I, I've named it, you know, I call it the beast and I felt like, you know, it wanted to go more and I could go more. I felt bad for it, you know, even though it's a hunk of aluminum, I didn't care. But I did feel bad that I couldn't get it across the finish line. But we drove back in, and, you know, Jay had a, we had a nice little chat about, you know, the race so far and who'd won. And, you know, I was shocked to learn that Rebecca Rush, the you know, super stud, she'd blown up and couldn't finish. I mean, she couldn't finish the race, holy moly. We got back just in time for the, the last two finishers to come through, and that was maybe the, the perfect bookend of my situation. These two guys totally blasted, but 
they would came down the straightaway and they could see us standing there just in front of the finish and you could tell they they got up out of their saddles and they switched to a higher gear and they hammered it as hard as they could home and skidded across the finish line. That's pretty cool to witness. So you're going back to that one? Oh yeah. Yeah. If I can make it happen next year, um, you know, I'll pretty much do anything to get back there again. Jay has some interesting ideas about how next year is next year's edition will be different from this one. I'd like to, you know, be part of that. I mean, I think about like all the people who like, skied every Berkey or something like that. Mm-hmm. I won't be able to do it every year forever, but it'd be nice to do at least the first few years. Yeah, yeah. most definitely. Monkey off the back with them, um, you know, with with your experience this winter, two two of the I would say toughest races there are, um, you know, and your honorary finish at JP's Pursuit. Um, I wanted your take on the thought of the whole, you know, DNF being a bad thing because it's different with summer to winter because these winter races there's you know conditions like you guys you go from the arrowhead where it's totally rideable really hard packed whatever um and like i did a rod uh, trail invitational it was no snow so those guys were totally flying to mm-hmm. jp's where they had snow you know you can't really do anything about it mm-hmm. so i want to get your thoughts you know now that you have plenty of time to think about it from a personal perspective what you know explain what you know how you feel about is DNF really a bad thing all the time? No, I'd say definitely no. Um, you still have to race, hoping to finish it. Um, somebody like myself has no, there's no way in the world I'll ever win a race like this or, you know, in a relatively normal year finishing like the top 10. Um, on the other hand, a lot of it is about the experience. Can you push your body further than you thought you could? Can you go faster the second year you do a race than the first year? Can you make it to a further checkpoint? Um, those are accomplishments. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine after the arrowhead, and he was saying, you know, nobody does this. You know, these are not things that people undertake. Um, obviously, there are a tiny, tiny group of people who do take them on, and an even smaller group that's really good at them. But by and large, this is not the kind of thing that people do. So you got to kind of feel good about the fact that you're willing to try it at the airhead, you know, to some degree succeed at it uh, and then be willing to try it again. Um, it's, I never thought when I signed up for the airhead that this would be like, uh, you know, a check on the bucket list, like one and done. I'm awesome. It's more like, well, I did it. I can finish it this first year, see what my time is, see how I felt. Can I do it different, better, faster the second year? Open question, but I feel the same way about Jay's pursuit and probably about other races too. Um, like the thing. Frozen 40. I didn't finish that one. Only got three laps done, but felt like next year I'm going to find a way to practice single strike riding and see if I can do both laps faster or all four laps again or something like that. So that not finishing doesn't doesn't matter that much to me um, right now, at least. Maybe six months it'll hurt more not to finish, but on the other hand, come on. <laughs> I mean, the guy who owned the ITI record <laughs> taking my hand and saying I needed to finish, oh, that's a pretty good situation to be in. Yeah, it, you know, part of it is my thinking is if you're going into an event um, with the perspective of I'm I'm never going to DNF, you're going to limit yourself of what you can do yeah. because you're never going to attempt you know something like JP's because there's a chance like you know if you're out there for 30 hours you might you're not going to finish yeah. and you and if you go into that thinking that you're you're not going to take on that yeah. challenge yeah you're so going to just I, do I think safe that's a dangerous mindset like that. right yeah. exactly yep. 
Um, and you know, you touched on you're you're good at segueing these these parts because the last thing I want to talk about is the the bucket list yeah. idea. Um, you know, these are a couple items that I see and I hear people say, "Oh, that's on my bucket list," but I really I don't like the term because it it makes it seem like it's something. Oh, you just you know you sign up and you put it together and you do this, you know, and it's for me it's more of something that you live. You know, like you commute every day on your fat bike in the winter. You've tested your gear without even really trying to test it every day. So, you know, from the perspective of somebody that's now done two type of bucket list races this year, can you just talk about what that means to you and, you know, how you feel about that term? Yeah, I, I can respect people who do come up with bucket list uh, events they want to do, you know. I want to finish a marathon or I want to do an Ironman or something like that. But um, I, I don't see it as like a, a one and done situation. I, you know, I've been surprised at how much biking has turned into almost a lifestyle thing for me, not just commuting where it's a practical, I got to get to work. This is the only way I can do it because we only have one car and my wife needs it um, to now, you know, literally rubbing elbows with people like Rebecca Rush and um, meeting all the incredible people you meet at there and um, all the races around, even just Minnesota, people I otherwise wouldn't know. They're pretty awesome. And I'd hate to be losing that just because I'm so obsessed with, like, oh, I'm going to do, you know, a winter ultra-distance bike race, and then I'll switch to the next thing. Um, there's something about the thought of doing better next time that's a huge incentive to me. you got to set the bar somewhere, and I've set a bar for myself now with these two events this year, and try to go above that bar next year um i certainly would love to do something like the white Mountains 100 up in alaska or you know the line maybe the iti just because those sound like the big the worst kinds of events to take on but we'll see if that comes to pass if it doesn't i'll be happy you know just doing the arrowhead yeah. too um like i said it's more lifestyle outlook uh perspective because yeah, you uh, can't fake it and yeah you can't fake races. it yeah. yeah, and it's not so worth doing the it. One thing you're I would... just going to do it to say you did it the one time. I, maybe it is to some people, but for me, I wanted more than that. Yeah, the one thing I was going to say with uh, that you're going to need to get on next year, you're going to have to have. Now that you're friends with Ben, he can work with you to get you set up on a bike that's maybe not like twenty pounds, <laughs> but maybe a little less than forty. <laughs> maybe a little less. So, and I, I guess let's put a plug in there for Ben because he finished in what third, I don't fourth. know how long. Fourth at the pursuit. Fourth, yeah. yeah. Fourth at the pursuit. And, uh, he's the owner, one of the owners of, uh, Revolution Bike and Ski in Rochester, or not Rochester, St. Cloud, uh, Saint Cloud yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. And so he's an awesome we'll get a guy. Plug in for Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right, cool. So uh, was there anything else? I, we, we touched on a lot and I just want to make another mention. People, you listen to this, just scroll down a little bit. You can see, you know, the bunch of links right there. You can read up any additional details. So uh, Christopher did a, a fantastic job of, you know, detailing out um, gear, bike, uh, some other questions about whether he slept and didn't sleep and all those kind of all those kind of things. Um, so definitely click on those. There's a newspaper story. There's you got all kinds of different press yeah. in this one. So it was good to see. Good yeah, to see for it is good to see people interested in it. I mean, all the different positive press. The Duluth paper had a couple good stories on it. Um, the One of the international fall area papers wrote up a couple good things on the, the race and the, the cold and stuff like that. 
normalizes it a little bit. I mean, while still making it seem kind of crazy. Yeah. So I'll leave you. I have one more question I'm going to spring on you here. Beard or no beard for next time? Oh, definitely beard. <laughs> I mean, A, yeah. photogenic. It seemed like it got in the way a What's lot. What's that? seems like it got in the way it a lot. It did get in the way a little bit. I'll, I'll trim it back a little bit um, and hope it's not as cold. But <laughs> okay. I think it did help a lot with frostbite. I mean, it it covered more of my face than it did. The areas on the cheeks that got frostbitten were the ones right above the, the beard line. So, uh, you know, there's a reason that moose are covered hair, right? <laughs> true. Yes, true. So... All right, cool. Thank, Thank you. you. I, I really appreciate you coming on. And, you know, I, I, listeners, I had told Christopher, I don't know, earlier this winter um, that I was kind of stalking him in his training. I was training for right. Scobia, and, you know, you were doing all these uh, snowmobile trail rides and all this stuff. So I kind of followed what was going on. So it was really cool to see how the winter yeah. played out. It's been fun watching so, yours, too. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So, all right. And yeah, thank you for the time and that'll do it for another episode of the Ride Fat Bike Show on Mountain Bike Radio. Thanks for listening to another episode of Mountain Bike Radio. Be sure to head over to mountainbikeradio.com to find a full listing of all the shows, recent episodes, archives, and you can buy some swag, t-shirts, socks, stickers, and you can become a member in which you get deals on coaching, nutrition, products, and a whole bunch of other things. So be sure to head over to mountainbikeradio.com and you'll find all the info you need. Thank you.